for, gosh, the last couple months, we've actually been going through First uh, Peter from start to finish, and we're getting close to winding down this series. And if you've been with us, uh, you know what we've been talking about. We've been talking about being sojourners. We've been talking about being exiles. If you haven't been with us, that is and has been the primary topic, is that this place, earth, where we live now, temporarily is not actually our home. Our home is in heaven with God, and because of what Jesus did, we have the privilege of, of sharing that home with him and being co-heirs with him in, a hev- in heavenly places. We've learned about marriage. We've learned about suffering. We, I feel like we talked about suffering like almost every week. And so we should hopefully by now know how to suffer pretty well. Uh, uh, and and I'm still, I still feel like I'm, I'm taking some of that in and I'm learning what that actually means. But again, the big picture is that we're sojourners and we're exiles. Peter has taught us through this sermon series how to live in this place as a sojourner and as, and as an exile well and how, to, and how to walk this life out with one another and to walk amongst unbelievers and draw them into a relationship with Jesus, considering the fact that we are exiles trying to draw them into our family. If you haven't read 1 Peter as a whole, I want to encourage you guys to do it. The reason being is, is, is it's because it actually is one letter written to a number of churches in what is mo- now modern-day Turkey. And so when you read it as a whole, you get a real clear picture of what Peter was, was saying. And, and it gives you a more clear picture to, to what Peter is trying to teach the church, how he's trying to encourage its members, how he's trying to speak to its leaders. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning is, is what Peter has to say to its leaders. And again, there's been a lot of talk about suffering, but there's also been a ton of encouragement. And so he didn't just walk in and say, here, carry your cross, put this thing on your back, and there's no, there's no relief from that. You just carry this thing around. He did say, yes, you will carry your cross. Jesus said it, but, but he said it in the context of suffering and in, in, in a bunch of different words. But he also gave us so many ways to endure those trials and to carry that cross and to walk out suffering well with our faith in Jesus. So this week, again, we're going to be looking at what it means to be a shepherd and what it means to be shepherded. When we lived in Tennessee, this was a few years ago, I worked for a company as a project manager. And have you guys ever had a boss that's just like lorded over you and has just been like, you will do what I say or you will suffer the consequences? I had a boss like that and he was awful to work for. It was so hard to work under his leadership. His idea of of leading was by yelling, by cussing, by demanding, by threatening, by, like, literally, we were sitting in this meeting, it was a progress meeting for, for all the subcontractors, we were building apartment complexes, and I, I was still new to the job, and he comes in and he's like, I'm gonna walk you through how to host one of these meetings. And he's yelling and cussing at people, and telling them, you're not doing your job. If you can't do your job, you can get out of here. And all the while, I'm learning how to do their books and their systems, and we're not even paying these people. We're like way behind on paying these people. And I'm like, how do you expect these guys to perform by threatening them, by bullying them, by not paying them? We contracted them to do a certain service and, and you're driving them with a whip. I was like, how does that work? And then everybody leaves and he says, that's how you lead. <laughs> I was like, you hired the wrong guy. <laughs> and I did, I told him, I said, I, thought you, I, I think you thought you hired a yes man and you didn't. The buck stops with me. You can yell at me, you can bully me, you can, you can intimidate me. I'm, it's not going any further than me. I'm not going to treat those guys like that. 
They don't deserve to be treated like that, and they're not going to do the job that we're hiring to do, them to do by being treated like that. So how does this tie to this morning? Well, in the text, we're going to see how we can conduct ourselves, how we conduct ourselves to be and how not to be. And in this case, my boss was conducting himself in a way how not to be. And I was telling him, I'm not going to be that way. I know how to conduct myself, and I'm going to operate from this place despite how you treat me and despite how you tell me that's how things are going to be run or need to be run. So <clears throat> we're starting with the last chapter of 1 Peter. We're going to be looking at chapter 5. And here he begins with an exhortation to the leaders of the church, to the shepherds of the church that he's been writing to. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. If you don't, it'll be on the screen. And um, I'm going to read it. It's out of the ESV. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Peter's willingness to, to pen these things for us to glean from almost 2,000 years later. And this morning, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and that you would speak through me. I pray that, that this time of teaching would, and preaching would, would be uh, there to open hearts and open eyes and, and to change lives, Lord. I pray that your Holy Spirit would come in and just wreck us this morning, that we would walk away changed, that we would walk away feeling closer to you, that we would walk away having learned how to shepherd and to be shepherded. And we thank you that, that you are the chief shepherd and you show us how to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, we're going to back up to 1 Peter 5, verse 1, and it says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And there's that word so, again, at the beginning of the verse, and we've been talking about this through the whole sermon series. Peter uses that word and another word, therefore. And what he's saying when he uses that word is, in light of what I just said, therefore, this. Or in this case, in light of what I just said, therefore, or so, this. And when I was reading this, it seems so disjointed from the rest of 1 Peter because he's been talking about suffering, he's been talking about encouraging the church and, and teaching them about marriages and teaching them about uh, how to live amongst one another and treat, treat each other well. And here he just changes gears, bump. And he's like, okay, now we're gonna talk about elders. And as I studied it, it actually makes a lot of sense because the whole time he's talking to the church and he's basically giving them instruction on how to live. So it would make sense for him to step back and say, okay, I've spoken to the church. You guys know where you stand. You guys know the fiery trials that you're going to endure. You guys know how you need to live to be in line with what Jesus called us to. Now I'm going to talk to your leaders. And so it actually makes a whole lot of sense. <clears throat> if we look back at 1 Peter 4:19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 
So, pick up in verse 5-1. So, elders, in light of this, I exhort you. Exhort means to literally encourage, strongly encourage, or urge. So he's telling them, elders, I'm strongly encouraging you. Pay attention. This is really important. I want you to get this. I've spoken to the church through the bulk of this letter. Now I'm going to speak to you. Listen up. So this morning, I'm actually not going to be giving you points. I'm going to charge you as a church. So you can get out your ATM cards and bring them to the front. (laughs) No. It's a bad joke. It's a bad dad joke. (laughs) I'm going to charge you, though. And the first charge is meet others where they're at. See, Peter, when he wrote this letter, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. There weren't very many apostles. And the churches that he's writing to know he's an apostle, know what he's accomplished in Jesus. And he can write to them as an apostle and say, like my boss did in Tennessee, this is how you do it. I'm an apostle, and you know who I am. You need to listen to me. And instead, he comes to them as an elder, a fellow elder, the passage says. He didn't talk down to them or lord over them. He comes to them as a co-laborer. And this morning, church, we meet people where they're at. He strongly encourages. I know if my boss in Tennessee had come to me and said, hey, let me walk with you through this leading process and and show you how to do it in in, in the right manner, I would have responded way better. But what I saw was not worthy of following. And so I had to step back and separate myself from that. And I had to meet the guys that were working for me where they were at and teach them what I knew to be right. And they became better employees because of it, I hope. I'd like to think so. I know they saw this man here treating him one way and treating me the same way. And recognizing he's not treating me that way. He's treating me differently. He's also walking me through how to do my job more specifically and more clearly. The Apostle Paul, he knew this really well. He says in Corinthians that he became all things to all men. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, he said, For though I am free from all, I have made myself servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law I became as one outside of the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ. What that means there is you don't just get this sin badge to go meet somebody who's sinning where they're at and conduct yourself in the same manner that they're conducting themselves. I want to be real clear here. You're not going to go into a bar and say, that man needs Jesus and sit down and get wasted with him. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, I can meet them where they're at without committing sin and meet them in their culture and get to know them and understand them in hopes that I can win them to Jesus. So again in 21, I'm just going to read it again. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law, not being outside of the law of God, but rather under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by, this, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of God, the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. Peter does this as he refers to himself as an elder, a, co, a co-laborer, a fellow elder in the church, not an apostle, lording his authority over them. 
We as believers need to do the same thing in our lives. We find ourselves in workplaces. We find ourselves in different environments. We find ourselves in different cultures. And we need to really understand and ask God for wisdom. Ask the Holy Spirit to come and say, I want to know these people. I want to know how they tick. Give me the ability, Holy Spirit, to speak to them in a way where they see you and they fall in love with you and they change and they repent and they get saved. Eugene Peterson is an author of the book, a book called The Pastor. If you guys know who he is, he uh, wrote the Message Bible, the Message Translation. And I've been reading this book, and there's a story in here that I think is, is applicable to, to this becoming all things to all men. I'm going to preface it a little bit. He's six or seven years old. It's 1939. He's in first grade. He lives in Montana, and he's walking home from school, and his, there's this kid, Garrison Johns, who lives a couple acres away from him. And Garrison takes a liking to Eugene, but Garrison takes a liking to him as a bully. And so each day, Eugene's on his way home from school, and Garrison John comes up, starts pestering him, starts bugging him, beats him up. Eugene goes home, tells his mom, he's a believer, his parents are believers, and his mom says, this, like, basically, this is your Christian responsibility. You turn the other cheek. She didn't have a real clear understanding of, of what that meant for him as a seven-year-old, six or seven-year-old, but, but she basically told him, you endure this. This is your trial. This is the thing that you're going to suffer. And so day in and day out, he goes to school. His, the book says that he loves school, but every day after school, he knows Garrison Johns is coming. And so <clears throat> he takes his beatings, and, and then this is what happens. It says, then when it happened, totally uncalculated, totally out of character, something snapped within me. For just a moment, the Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness, and I grabbed Garrison. To my surprise and his, I realized that I was much stronger than he was. I wrestled him to the ground, sat on his chest, and pinned his arms to the ground with my knees. I couldn't believe it. He was helpless under me. At my mercy, it was too good to be true. I hit him in the face with my fists. It felt good, and I hit him again. Blood spurted from his nose, a lovely crimson on the snow. By this time, all the other children were, je were cheering, egging me on. This is 1939, so I love this. Black his eyes, bust his teeth. A torrent of biblical invective poured out of them, although nothing would compare to, with what I would later in life read in the Psalms. I said to Garrison, say uncle. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again. More blood, more cheering. Now my audience was bringing the best out of me. And then my Christian training reasserted itself. I said, say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. <laughs> he wouldn't say it. I hit him again. More blood. I tried again. Say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And he said it. Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. I laughed, I was reading that, and I was just like, this is so good. And I picture this little seven-year-old on, on this other boy just beating him up, telling him, see, you believe in Jesus. So this is just a fun example. I don't, I'm, I'm not condoning being, becoming a bully to win somebody to Jesus, but when I read this story, I'm like, man, well, he became a bully, and guess what happened? Garrison Johns became a Christian. Charles Spurgeon said this about it. This is a little more weighty and a little bit more to the heart. And he says, a true man welcomes a fellow man. 
he sees that he sees that he is the member of the great family of mankind, and he says to him, come in. But if you, in your majestic greatness, speak to me like Jupiter thundering from a cloud, I shall not be likely to regard you. Or if I do regard you, your message will be forgotten in the grandeur and glory of yourself. This is what never ought to happen, my brethren, that people should think of us and forget our message. Let us belittle ourselves that we may magnify God. Another story about when we were in Tennessee, I'm from here. So moving there was like moving to a different planet. And I was like, oh man, I feel so out of place. I remember at one point we'd been there, I don't know how long, for a few weeks. And I'd gone to a gas station and I go in there and the lady's got this real sweet Southern accent. And she goes, oh, you're not from around here, are you? I said, no, I'm not. And she said, I can tell by your accent. And I said, I don't have an accent. You have an accent. And she goes, oh no, sweetheart, you have an accent. And for the first time in my life, I was like, I'm the outsider. I have never been an outsider before. And so we lived in this little rural town and and a couple doors up from us was a guy named Kevin and he, he was a good friend of mine. He became a good friend of mine. He was a couple years younger than me. And out there in the South, everybody goes to church. Everybody goes. They're Christians on Sunday. And, and the rest of the week, they live how they want to live. And, and, they, they, uh, and I don't want to offend anybody here, but a lot of them, they, 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 what they do is, is they live the life they want to live on, on Monday through Saturday, and then they go worship Jesus on Sunday, and, then that's, that's just, and they were raised in the church, and that's how things are for them. And so they haven't had this revelation of like Jesus actually invading their hearts. And thankfully, when I went into that culture, I'd had that revelation, and what I needed to do was learn about the culture. What I needed to do was meet them on holidays when they were having crawfish boils and I needed to eat crawfish with them. Something I never imagined I would do. Something she never imagined I would do. And she's like, you're eating a bug, you know? I'm like, it's actually really delicious. I had to go shooting with them, had to go hunting with them. I immersed myself in their culture. And about two weeks before we moved back, my friend Kevin got saved. And I was so grateful for that. And his parents had told me, they had said, you changed my son's life. His, man, his dad was a man that was incredibly proud, a farmer, very hard man, in tears, thanking me for ministering and being a light to his son. Had I treated him like I was from California and I was better than him, he would have completely disregarded me. And anybody that I was in a relationship with, that I, with, I wouldn't have had because I would have been speaking to them from a cloud on Jupiter thundering down. You need to listen to me. You need to hear what I'm saying. But instead, what I was taught in the church and I'm so thankful for was meet people where they're at. And so I want to tell you guys, find out where you're at, find out the people that you're with and meet them where they're at. People will get saved And that's what we're here for. Honor God and bring people into Jesus' kingdom. Second half of the verse says that Peter's a witness to the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter's basically saying that he's qualified to speak to them in in this way, still not lording over them. But if there was any doubt from a fellow elder, he's saying, no, I'm a witness to this. And they know And so I was thinking, what are some of the things that 
that Peter was a witness to, well, he remembers Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, my soul is very sorrowful. Even to death, remain here and watch with me. He fell asleep. And then Jesus was crucified and he was resurrected. And I think Peter fell asleep because he didn't recognize what Jesus was saying. He didn't have full understanding that Jesus was saying, listen, I'm about to die, so please wait with me. I'm so anxious. I just, I need you close by. Will you please wait with me? And then as he's writing this letter, and he has a full revelation of what Jesus did at this point while penning this letter, he's saying, Jesus said, my soul is very sorrowful. He was about to die, and I was a witness of that. He remembers Jesus saying in that same moment, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And he remembers Judas walking up and giving Jesus a kiss before the soldiers grabbed him. And again, he doesn't have full weight of, or full understanding of the weight of what's happening in this moment. But then as Jesus is crucified and is resurrected, spends time with them after his resurrection, he goes, oh, that's what he meant. When he was talking about at the Last Supper, I'm going to be betrayed with a kiss. Oh, it was Judas. I understand now. I get it. Man, I wish I stayed awake. I wish I knew and I had an understanding of what was about to happen. I would have been right by his side. And then he witnesses Jesus being spat upon and mocked and beaten. And someone says, hey, aren't you with that man? And he says, no, no, I'm not. And then again, someone says, no, I'm sure you were with him. Nope, I don't have anything to do with that man. A third time, no, you were undoubtedly with him. And then Peter hears the rooster crow. Jesus had told him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he hears the rooster. And what Jesus said comes flooding back. Scripture says that he went away bitterly weeping. I'd like to think that he mustered up some strength and he actually went back in. He, he dealt with the emotion that he was feeling, the guilt and the shame and the pain of denying Jesus. And then going in and saying, I can't believe I did that, Lord. I'm sorry as he witnesses his Savior on the cross dying for him. We too, as much as we can be, are witnesses, aren't we? Through scripture reading, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we see the sufferings of Christ. I'm talking about them. And we exhort one another despite those things, not in spite of, but we exhort one another despite having witnessed this thing that, that, is, that, that, that is so painful and so tragic and we still sin. We exhort one another and we charge one another and we strongly encourage and we meet people where they're at in hopes that we might win more into God's family. So how do we do that? Let's look at verses two and three and it says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. My second charge to you this morning is to shepherd well. In order to do that, we need to know what a shepherd's role is. In the book of John, in verses 15 through 17, Jesus asks Peter, Three times. Do you love me, Peter? Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. This is after Jesus was crucified. He says, yes, Lord, I love you. He says, then feed my sheep. 
And then he asks him again, Peter, do you love me? And, Jesus, and Peter's like, yes, Lord, I love you. And he tells him, then tend my sheep. And he asks him a third time, Peter, do you love me? And now Peter's like, Lord, you know that I love you. You know all things. And he says, then feed my sheep. You know what's funny about this text? I've read this for years. I know this text well. And I always read it as, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. It doesn't say that. It says to feed and to tend. Feeding and tending are two vastly different things. They're intermingled, but they're different. It's like with my kids. I feed my kids, but I don't just feed my kids. I tend to them. I raise them. And so what Jesus was saying is, Peter, feed my sheep. Feed other believers. Tend to them. Look over them. Watch after them. Take charge over them. Know where they're at. Know how many of them there are. Make sure that not one is missing. Don't just feed them. Tend to them. I imagine in that moment, Peter was hurt. He was just like, you know I love you. Some theologians, I believe this, the theologians believe that this was him, Jesus redeeming Peter's denial of him three times. He says, Peter, I know you denied me three times. I'm, I'm going to incrementally restore you. I'm going to ask you the same question three times. And I bet that it was ingrained in Peter in that moment. Man, I have to feed and tend to these sheep. And not I have to, I get to. And it's really important because my Lord and Savior said it to me three times. Peter, pay attention. Feed them, tend to them, feed them. It's, it's, it's an act out of love. If I, was, if I didn't love my kids, I might just feed them. I might not feed them at all, but I surely wouldn't tend to them. In Matthew 18, the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus tells a story about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders off. And he says, isn't it just so much more important to leave the 99 on the mountain and go after the one? And when the one is found, we rejoice over the one sheep that was lost but is now found? That's what a shepherd does. He'll leave the 99 to go after the one. Jesus is our best example of how to shepherd. In John 10, let me back up for a second. In this community, I want you guys to be looking for who's not here. Who you see on a regular basis that might have ended up not here for a couple of weeks. And I want you to go after them. Call them. Text them. How are you? Are you okay? I haven't seen you in a couple of weeks. There might be people in here who are emotionally disconnected, who are spiritually hurting, and although they're physically here, emotionally and spiritually, they're not. We need to go after them. We need to restore them to the flock. You know what the enemy does? You know what the wolf that's described in the Bible does? He looks for the sheep who is weak, who is tired, and who is alone. And he will pick you off. We have a responsibility to one another. We need to make sure that each person in this room is cared for, and Kirk and Kelly and I can't just do it ourselves. We can't care for all of you wholly and completely like you need. We need each other, and we need your help to care for one another. We might not see that person that's missing. So I want to charge you to shepherd well. Look for the one person. 
that you haven't seen. Look for the person who's here but is just disconnected and engage them. In John 10, it says, The sheep know the shepherd's voice, and the shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. I was on the 5 freeway. This was years ago before Steph and I had gotten married. I seem to encounter God on freeways. I don't know what that's about. It's probably, I don't know. It's a holy thing. It's destiny, yeah. <laughs> and so I'm on the 5 freeway. I'm coming back from Bakersfield, and I was a wandering sheep. And I was trying to wander away from the flock of God. And I was telling him to leave me alone. My pride had crept in, and the enemy, the wolf, who was waiting for me to veer off, of my path, off the path just a little bit away from the flock, had come and started whispering lies into my ears. You can do this better than he can. You were happier before Jesus. Your life was easier and better before Jesus. You were a good manager over your own life. And if you guys know my story, that is totally not true. But I bought the lie. And I'm yelling at God on the five freeway, coming down the grapevine, and I'm telling him, leave me alone. Life is easier without you. I don't need you. I got it. I got it under control. Just leave me alone. And then I ask the question, what do you want from me? And I'm yelling. And I hear Jesus come. And I hear him say, I love you. And you're my son. And I'm not done with you. And I broke. I couldn't even drive. I pulled over and I wept like Peter when he denied Jesus. And I had a revelation of God's love and care for me. I knew his voice. A sheep under his care. I know his voice. And I was one out of 99 that he pursued. He came after me. We need to go after the one that's missing. It's a big deal. It's really important that we take care of the people that are in our care and go after those who aren't to draw them into our flock. Jesus did it. He did it with Peter. He's done it millions of times over since he died on the cross, and he wants us to keep doing it. We got to shepherd well. Psalm 23, David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. The sheep are not in want. The shepherd makes sure that they have everything they need. Sometimes the shepherd says, lay down. I know you don't want to lay down right now, but it's time for you to lay down. You need rest. Other times, he leads us behind beside still waters. It's refreshing. There's green grass everywhere. It's a picture of care. David, the same author of this passage, talks about in Psalms of having a cast soul. And he says, oh my soul, why are you so cast? And to have a, to, the word cast is a shepherding term. So people in his day that would have read that would have known what he was talking about. And so what he's doing is he's saying, I have a cast soul. And that cast word translates also to a cast sheep. And so what a cast sheep is, is a sheep who has fallen over and is either on its side or on its back and it cannot ride itself. It can't get up. And if the shepherd's not paying attention, 
that sheep will very literally die. So the shepherd has to come, pick the sheep up, put him back on his feet. Oftentimes the sheep still cannot stand. So what the shepherd has to do is sit down, put the sheep in his lap, and massage the sheep's legs to get circulation flowing again and to make it so that the sheep can stand. And so David knew this, and he was praying to God, oh, my soul is so cast. My soul is upside down. Lord, I need you to come, and I need you to make it right because you're a good shepherd. And if I still can't stand, I know that as a good shepherd, you will sit down, and you will place me in your lap, and you will massage my legs until I'm able to stand again. We're all shepherding something or someone. So I want to encourage you, as I already have in your shepherding process, when you see someone who needs to be flipped right back up on their feet and loved and cared for to do it. There's three pitfalls in this text with regards to leading. Number one is not under compulsion, but willingly. We don't do this out of duty. I go to work sometimes out of duty. I enjoy what I do, but I don't love it. I come here, firstly, because God called me here, and in conjunction with that, from a place of love. I don't have to stand here and do this. I get to stand here and do this. It's a privilege. It's not a duty. It might feel like that sometimes. We've got to be honest with ourselves. But realistically, this is a place for me to pour out love, the love that was poured out to me on the cross. I get to pour out to you in leading this church with Kelly and with Kirk. Then they don't do this out of duty. They do this because they love you. They do this because God loved them first and they were called to this. Second pitfall is not for shameful gain, but eagerly. I'm not running ads in the paper for Christian counseling to get paid. I'm not trying to reach out to people saying, let me marry you. It's only going to cost you 500 bucks. I'm not saying, hey, I know your grandpa just died. I'll do your funeral. 250 bucks. No big deal. I'm not doing that. That's not what we're here for. Unfortunately, in the Christian arena, there actually is a ton of money to be made. And the sad thing is, a ton of people exploit that and use that. But here in Scripture, it says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. I'm eager to love and lead. Jesus was eager to love and lead. The third point, not domineering, but as examples. We've already looked at this in the first verse where Peter could have said, I'm an apostle. You need to listen to me. We heard it in the story with the guy that I worked for who did do that. I lord over you, and you do what I tell you to do. So we don't do it from a domineering place. What happens when somebody does that? Especially in the church, we're unhappy, we're unhealthy, and we follow out of fear. Or help me if I ever come at you from a domineering place. I don't ever want to do that. Ever. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And so I say the same to you. It's a scary thing to say because I don't always live right. I still fall short of the glory of God. But I say to you, follow me 
as I follow Jesus. Jesus was the perfect example of all of these. He was willing, even to the point of death, to go to the cross and to die, not out of compulsion. He didn't do this out of duty. Everything that Jesus did was from a place of love. He was eager. You know what he was eager for? He was eager for us to be set free. I heard somebody say one time, Jesus didn't come to beautify our jail cells. He came to break us out. He was the best example in everything he did, even before his ministry began. Moving on to verse 4, it says, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of unfading glory. Jesus is the chief shepherd, shepherd appointed by God, and we submit to his shepherding first. All of us. And as leaders, we take an account for how we shepherd you. I'm referring to as, as an elder, as for Kirk and for Kelly, Kirk and Kelly, <laughs> and myself. You're getting a little more gray. I got you confused. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> it's a double jab. <laughs> um, we take an account for how we shepherd you. We do. We're responsible for you. And I don't know why I never caught this before, but while I was thinking about uh, me being responsible for you guys, it's, just, it's a simple thing, but it was revolutionary for me. And I thought, Jesus is responsible for me. Jesus is responsible for me. He feeds me, and he tends to me, and he cares for me, just like I do with my kids, just like we do with you guys. We're responsible for you. Kelly talked about the fiery trial last week and about like being in the fire, in the refiner's fire. I'm going to share a story about that, but from a different angle. And it's from the angle of Jesus' attentiveness. And so um, there's this lady, and she's going to a, a woman's conference, and she has to speak on the refiner's fire. She doesn't, know, she doesn't know anything about refining metal, so she makes an appointment with a silversmith. She says, hey, I have to do this talk at a ladies' retreat, and I have to share with them about the refiner's fire, and I, I would like to know what that process is like. He says, come down. So she comes down there, and she's sitting with him, and he takes a chunk of silver, and he throws it in the little metal thing that doesn't melt under the extreme heat, and he puts it in the furnace, and they wait. And she starts asking him questions. How long does this take? Oh, it takes a while. How hot is the heat? It's, it's incredibly hot. And so the silver starts to break down and starts to become a liquid. And the impurities of the silver, they float to the top, and there's like these little pools, darker clouds. And those are the impurities, and they're burning out. And he's like watching it like a hawk. And she's watching it. And it's been a while now. And she's still asking him different types of questions. And, and she's like, how long does this process take? And he's like, uh, it, it takes quite a while. Sometimes it has to happen over and over again. And she's like, can you walk away from this? No, 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 no. If I walk away, it might not be as pure as it needs to be. And if I leave it in there too long, it'll burn up. And she says, how do you know when the silver's at its purest form? And he says, when I can see my reflection in it. I thought, that's Jesus. He puts us in the furnace, and it takes a long time sometimes, and it's so hot, but we don't burn up. He's there, he's attentive, and he's watching. He doesn't walk away. He watches, and he pays attention, and these impurities, they bubble up, and you can see the dark clouds on top of the pure silver, and they begin to get smaller and smaller, and he knows, if I walk away now, he may burn up. 
If I walk away now, there may be more impurities that need to come out, and we're going to have to do this again. And then he pulls the silver out, and he looks at it, and he sees himself, and he says, perfect. It's done. You know what's amazing? I get a crown. I thought, that's so cool. I get a crown for leading. That's amazing. You know what's even more amazing? Every one of you gets a crown. That's what scripture says. I thought about this, and I was like, oh my gosh. God's love is ridiculous. It's lavish. It's reckless. Not only does his son come and die for us, which was way more than we ever deserved. Scripture says that he died for us while we were still sinners. We don't deserve that. And then he raises again. He forgives us of our sins. He raises again. We get to go to sit with him in heavenly places. And then when we get there, they go, here's your crown. How amazing is that? I don't deserve that. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. But when Jesus looks at me, when God looks at me, he sees himself and he says, you know what? That's worthy of a crown. You get a crown. That's unbelievable. That kind of love, we don't know that kind of love. We get to know that kind of love. When we get there, just getting to be there is more than enough, more than we deserve. And he takes it another step. We can't use that crown as a motivator. That's not my motivation. That's, that's just a privilege. That's just a blessing on top of blessing on top of blessing on top of blessing. What motivates and should motivate us is love. Just like Jesus' attentiveness and his sacrifice for us. That's our motivator. Everything hinges on that. It's God's love to us and then our love to everyone else. Our last verse this morning says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For, God's per- for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Third charge, eat your humble pie. Doesn't taste good most of the time. At least it has this negative connotation where we're like, Oh, that was humble pie. It didn't taste good. That sucked. Steph and I, when we first got married, she had a really successful business. And the Lord had told me at one point, everything that was associated with that, all the money, all the stuff, all those things, all that's going to go away. I was a big slice of humble pie. I didn't tell her because I knew that she would say, oh, no, no, we got to hold on to this. I got to hang on to this. It's not going to go away. I have to cling on to this. Years later, as we watched things go away, finances go away, business go away, cars go away, houses go away, all that stuff, in my mind, I'm going, God, you're, you're stripping down what you said you were going to strip down. You're refining us. It was a big slice of humble pie. I was in the fire for a long time. And at one point, when we were pretty much tapped out, we were sitting with some friends from Brea, and I had told them, the Lord told me that that this was going to happen. And Steph's like, why didn't you tell me? And I said, well, because of that reaction right there. You would have grabbed a hold of it, and you would have held on to it proudly. And Scripture says, 
that God resists the proud, and that he gives grace to the humble. Peter starts with addressing younger men and women, but then he actually says, I think he catches himself. He's like, you who are younger, submit. And then he says, actually, wait. All of you, clothe yourselves in humility towards one another. You know how people are going to come to know Jesus and how people are going to want to be a part of this family? Is when we act humbly towards one another. Is when we serve one another. I want to encourage you to eat that pie. It's actually really good for you. Keeps you in a place and a posture that's right with Jesus and like Jesus. Clothe yourselves in humility. This means we serve one another. This means we think less of ourselves and more of others. This means we take time with one another. It means that we pray for one another. We keep a short list of wrongs. If you've been wronged, let it go. Don't hold on to it. It's toxic. It's poison for yourself. It causes you to look at the person that you think wronged you in a bad light. Let it go. We pray for one another. We forgive quickly. We fight for unity. You know what the enemy wants to do is cause disunity in the church because then he discredits us as a whole. People outside looking in go, look at them. They can't even get along. I don't want to be a part of that. When we do this, God showers us with grace when we extend humility towards one another. I'm so grateful that when I was on the five freeway, my pride didn't cause him to oppose me. I'm sure if I continued to resist, he would have said, okay. Go ahead. But he came in and he humbled me and that was a slice of humble pie that I had to eat and it was good for me. Jesus is our perfect example of humility. He humbled himself even to the point of death. He's the only man in all of humanity who could have stood up with pride and said, I'm not doing that. None of us are in that position. And he's the only one that could. And he said, no, I will humble myself and I will do my Father's will, even though I don't want to. He was humble in all that he did. He was humble as a son to Mary and Joseph. I'm sure that he was disciplined at some point or another. Scripture says that he didn't sin, but undoubtedly he was disciplined, maybe, maybe, maybe by his parents wrong, but, but he submitted himself to that. He worked for his dad, and he had to learn his dad's trade. And I'm sure at times his dad was frustrated, didn't want to teach him, maybe didn't feel like he was listening, but he submitted himself to that anyways, and he learned how to be a carpenter. And then in his ministry, he submitted himself to his father. And he went to the cross for us, his heavenly father. Jesus on that cross looked down at us in all humility and said, I, as the chief shepherd, will lay my life down for you, my little sheep. Fear not, there is a wolf among you, but I will stand between you and him. And I will die so that you may be saved. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the chief shepherd. We thank you that you are so kind and so glorious and so humble. We thank you that you stood between us and the enemy and you 
died the death that we deserved. I pray, Lord, that this church would live lives worthy of that sacrifice. That you would be honored in all that we do. That we would exercise humility towards one another. That we would serve one another. That we would go after the one. That we would not walk in compulsion. That we would not serve in bitterness, but that we would recognize that because of you, the chief shepherd, our example, we can do the same with one another. We can shepherd one another well. We can go gather other sheep and bring them into our fold and shepherd and care for them. Lord, help Kirk, Kelly, and myself. Help us, Lord. We need you. We can't lead this church well without you. Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you help us to eat our humble pie and do it with excitement and anticipation with what you're doing here in the church? In Jesus' name, amen.